Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Everyone, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors at Soul Church, and awesome to be here with you. Great, especially warm welcome if you're new visiting Soul Church. We love having visitors. We hope you really enjoy your time here with us. Uh, we are jumping into the Book of Acts again. We we did some of this last year, and now we're jumping back into it. Uh, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to pray as we dive in. So why don't you pray with me, Father God? We thank you so much for your Word. Uh, Thank you for these stories that we get in Acts, showing us what happened when the church first began, uh, when Jesus was risen from the dead and ascended and sent his apostles out. We pray that as we read it, you would inspire us to see how powerful you are and to see that your work is continuing. And we pray that we would live the way you want us to live in response to the things that we see. Amen. If you had to pick one word to describe Christians or to describe the church... What word would you pick? One word, describe Christians, the church. What word would you pick? It could be all sorts of things. It could be positive things that you pick, like Christians and the church is generous or patient or loving. It could be negative things like hypocritical, divided, immoral. One word you're unlikely to pick, though, is unstoppable. The church and Christians and God's work in the world seems very stoppable. Not unstoppable. Did you know, this is a fact, every year in Australia, 30 churches close their doors and shut down. Every year, 30 churches. Uh, across every denomination, every branch, every type, basically any, any group that calls itself a church, 30 a year. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, aging congregation, church splits, not having leadership, all sorts of reasons. But let me give you a sense of what that looks like. I did a Google search this week. I searched Churches Illawarra, and this is what came up. Uh, There are the full spread here of denominations and types and everything. There's Hillsong and the Catholic Church and Wollongong Baptists and Soul Church, where they're... uh, Care of you, uniting, all sorts of churches up there. Uh, Anything that Google found with church in the title, basically. And there's 20 of them. So every year, the equivalent of all of these churches on the map plus 10 more, closed down. That is clear evidence to me of something that I think we instinctively know, that the church is in decline in Australia. And we experience this. I'm sure you all know people who have zero interest in even a conversation about Jesus, yet alone following and trusting in Jesus. Uh, I'm sure you know of people who are hard-hearted and closed to Jesus, and maybe even who hate Jesus with a passion. Uh, Plus, persecution and the hate is going up. The hate for being a Christian or or for being anyone with serious beliefs is rising. The Bible seems less relevant to a culture than it ever has been before. There's lots against us. And who are we? Christians are not that amazing. Uh, There's a few outstanding leaders, a few visionaries in Australia that can galvanize the rest of us. But on the whole, Christians in Wollongong, Christians in Australia are a pretty mediocre group. So how can we change the world? How can we change lives? That is why we are looking at the book of Acts. Because the big message of Acts is that the church, the news about Jesus, God's work in the world is unstoppable. For the simple reason 
that it's God's work and you can't stop God. We started this series last year. We saw Acts chapter 1 to 8. I'm going to give you a bit of a whirlwind tour previously. Here's what we've seen previously in Acts. Have a look with me. Grab your Bible. Come back to Acts chapter 1, the very first sentence of this book. I love Acts. This is going to be an awesome time for our church. Have a look. Uh, It's written by a man named Luke. He also wrote the book called Luke and the book called Acts. So have a look at the first sentences. Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So the, the book of Luke is about what Jesus began to do, did you notice? But this is about what Jesus continues to do. Uh, This book of Acts is usually called the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of kind of Jesus' special messengers. But I think a better title is to call it the Acts of the Risen Jesus, because it's about what Jesus is doing through his Holy Spirit, through his apostles that he sends out on a mission. And you see what the mission is in verse 8. Have a look, verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's their job. Their job is to take the news that Jesus has risen from the dead so anyone who trusts in him can be forgiven. They're meant to take that news out in expanding circles from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the ends of the earth, everywhere. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. A few days after this moment, after Jesus tells them this, the first Christians are in Jerusalem and they're celebrating on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit fills the apostles and Peter, the apostle Peter, gives this sermon and it's massive and epic. And here's how it ends. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 36. The end of Peter's sermon. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There's just this crazy numerical growth happening here. 3,000 people followed Jesus in a single day. And there's also this spiritual growth going on and lives that are transformed. So look at verse 42, the next sentence. Verse 42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is an incredible picture of what God's doing in the early church. There's growth, but this growth doesn't go unnoticed. Persecution goes hand in hand with this growth. And it starts in chapter 4. Have a look at chapter 4, verse (coughs) 1. 
says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. There's persecution here from the first century Jewish and religious and political leaders. They don't like what the apostles are saying, so they try and stop it. And the persecution and the pressure just ramps up across this book. uh, They arrest the apostles again and have a look at chapter 5, verse 40. This is what happens the second time they arrest the apostles. Chapter 5, verse 40. They're talking amongst themselves. They've sent the apostles out. They're talking amongst themselves. And it says, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now they're arresting, now they're beating them up and whipping them, flogging them. And then a man named Stephen gives a speech to this group of people and they get so angry about it that they kill him. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 54. Chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. It's this kind of tragic, horrific moment of this this violence, this mob violence breaking out. And this is the first Christian martyr who dies for Jesus. And this is the first time as well that we meet Saul. Saul is an up-and-coming young leader. He's making his mark on the world of first century religion and politics by trying to stamp out this Christian movement. And he takes it the next step. Have a look at chapter 8 again. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This persecution is just ramping up. But just when it looks like this baby, fledgling Christian movement is about to crumble, God uses that very persecution to be the thing that achieves his purposes. That very persecution is what spreads this from Jerusalem out to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. The persecution forces Christians to leave the safety of Jerusalem to go to Samaria and to Judea. Have a look at verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And where it goes, and more people start to trust in Jesus. And now, in chapter 9, that's where we're picking up this story again. In chapter 9, we cross back to Saul. And here's what's going on for Saul. 
Verse 1, chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He's hunting down Christians. That's how much he hates Jesus. He's not content to just let them be in Jerusalem. Now he's left Jerusalem and he's chasing them to hunt this down as this growth is happening. And there's two things I want to show you from Acts 9 about God's work. Here's the first one. It's that hard hearts can't stop God's work. Saul is not like many people in Wollongong who are not really very interested in Jesus. Many people in Wollongong who are apathetic about Jesus, Saul is angry about Jesus. He pours his time, his money, his effort, his heart, his mind to destroying Jesus and anyone associated with Jesus. I think he's trying to eradicate a lie, what he believes to be a lie that's been spreading since the day of Pentecost, which is that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he's alive, that he's the son of God and he's the Lord. And I've got to say, looking at Saul... There is no way you would ever expect him to become a Christian. If you're a betting person, you would not put your money on him to become a Christian. He hates Jesus. Why would he ever trust in Jesus? He's not like people who have never heard about Jesus or people who don't have much interest in Jesus or people who like some things that Jesus says and not other things. Saul hates Jesus and he hates everyone who follows Jesus. With all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength until he meets Jesus. Look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Have you ever had a moment when you realized you were just completely wrong about something? A flash of insight, some new understanding. That's what Saul has right here. Except the flash is a blinding light that stops him in his tracks. And he hears the Jesus that he believes is dead say to him, you are completely wrong about me. I am alive. I am risen from the dead. I am the Lord. I'm the head of the church that you are trying to crush. You just can't overstate how dramatic this moment must have been for Saul. In that moment, on that road, he discovered that he had devoted his entire life to the wrong thing. That Jesus is not who he thought he was. He's far more than he ever imagined him to be. He's the ruler of the universe. He's the king of heaven. He's the son of God. He's the Lord. That's a truth that changes everything. It kind of reminds me a little bit of detective movies. You know, detective movies, they've got that map up on the thing and all the lines, and they're trying to join the lines to find out what's at the center. What brings all the facts together so they can solve the crime? A little bit like that, Saul has just realized that Jesus is at the center. Not at the center of a crime, but at the center of the universe. 
that Jesus connects all the lines. Jesus makes sense of life. So every theory that Saul has had about what Saul's life is for and why he's here and the purpose of his life is changed in that moment on that road by Jesus. And every theory Saul had about who Jesus is and why Jesus is here and what Jesus is doing is changed in that moment on that road when he meets Jesus. Has that happened for you? Is, this, is Jesus who you think Jesus is? Now, I'm a pastor and I get a lot of opportunities to meet people across the Illawarra. And I meet a lot of people who have read the Bible as a kid and heard a couple of the, the stories from the Bible, uh, maybe who went to primary school and did scripture once a week at primary school or went to a Catholic high school. And so they've got all these stories and ideas about Jesus and God that they've learned from other people. And I always encourage them to read the Bible for themselves as an adult, uh, to make a really good go of it and check if Jesus stacks up. Because it's a good thing that people have been taught stories and ideas from the Bible as a kid. That's an awesome thing. Uh, But I'll challenge and encourage people, read it yourself and read it as an adult, with an adult's eyes to it, not just a kid's eyes to it. Make a good go of it. Check if Jesus stacks up. And the reason that I encourage people to do that is that if even Saul was so wrong about Jesus, maybe we are too. It's a hard process to do that. It's hard to pick up the Bible as an adult and kind of work through it. It's hard because it takes a lot of humility, uh, being willing to have the whole way you view life reshaped if Jesus is more than you imagine him to be. But that's what Saul discovered, that Jesus is alive that he's the son of God, that he's the Lord and the king. And he also saw the kind of king and Lord that Jesus is. Extraordinarily loving, extraordinarily forgiving. Let me give you some of Saul's own words. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy as he's reflecting on who he used to be. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Can you feel the the emotion in that? Can you see that he's just amazed still, decades after that moment, amazed that Jesus would have forgiven him. He just seems to me to be stunned by just how kind and forgiving and loving Jesus is. Do you know this about Jesus? Or are you still to discover that Jesus is more than you imagine him to be? Plus, Saul's also changed by Jesus. That's what happens when people meet Jesus. Lives change. Have a look back in Acts 9. Have a look at verse 19. Acts 9, verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem? among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The same time and money and heart and mind and effort that he poured into destroying the church, now he pours into building the church. The same hatred of Jesus with all his heart and mind and soul and strength has become love of Jesus with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. He even changes his name. Uh, He changes his name from Saul to Paul. Saul means God's gift, like I'm God's gift to the world. Paul means tiny and humble. He changes his name to match what Jesus has done for him. That's what happens when people meet Jesus. Lives change when people meet Jesus. Do you know this about Jesus? Or do you still need to discover that Jesus is more than you imagine him to be? And if you do know this about Jesus, I think this teaches us something really powerful. This teaches us to never, ever, ever give up on anyone. Your family, your friends, your colleagues, your kids, your spouse, the the most messy person you know, the most self-absorbed person you know, the most troubled and broken and abused person you know, the most evil person you know. Never, ever, ever give up on anyone. Don't believe that anyone is beyond God's power to save and change. Because hard hearts can't stop God's work. And Paul is what happens when people meet Jesus. If, if that's what Jesus did for Saul, is anyone beyond saving? Of course they're not. God can save and change anyone. He can even save and change you. Sometimes people believe that they are too far gone for God. The kind of, I hear this a lot. People are like, I could never come to church. The walls will crash down on me. I'll be struck by lightning on the way. You know, all these ideas that people use to really, I think, capture something deeply profound. People who feel like not even God could forgive me for what I've done and what I've said and what I've seen. If that's how you feel, it's just simply not true. Hard hearts can't stop God's word not even the hardness of your heart. If he saved even Saul, who absolutely hated Jesus with every fiber of his being and was as far from pleasing God as it's possible to be, then he can save and forgive and transform you and me and anyone. So don't give up on anyone, not even you. And don't you wish that the way God saved and changed people was just Damascus Road moments every time? Wouldn't that be great if you could just take a regular, uninterested, comfortable Wollongong local or even a hard-hearted, anti-Jesus human, walk them down Crown Street Mall, there's a flash of light, Jesus appears, they're changed. That'd be great, wouldn't it? It'd be so easy. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus usually does. It's not even what Jesus does here. He sends Ananias. Have a look at this, verse 10. Verse 10, in Damascus... There was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Great name for a street. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Jump over to verse 17. Verse 17. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the second thing I want to show you about God's work. Hard hearts can't stop God's work and hardly qualified Christians can't stop God's work which is what Ananias is. What's massive to me, as I was thinking about this during the week, what's massive to me is that there is Saul, he's blind on a road, he's just seen Jesus, and his whole world has just been completely turned around. He must have had just so many questions for Jesus. So what does the risen, all-powerful King Jesus, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord who knows absolutely everything, what does Jesus say to Saul? He basically says, there's this dude up the road named Ananias, and he'll tell you everything you need to know. That's pretty much what he says. Jesus tells Saul almost nothing, and he sends Ananias instead. And Ananias is the one who loves him and welcomes him to the church and teaches him. And this is how God works. This is how God almost always works. God's standard method of operation is to use Ananias's. God's standard method of operation is to use Christians to introduce people to Christ. Even though we feel unqualified, and even though at times we are unqualified. I don't think our our culture helps us here very much. I'm sure you know this about our culture. I'm sure you've noticed this. We have a very professionalized culture. Uh, We have exams and certificates and degrees and training courses, and we're constantly learning. And as Christians, we can think... I'm not qualified unless I have the piece of paper or the exam marks that prove that I'm qualified. And let me tell you about someone I met a couple of years back. This is Alfred, Alfred Olwa. He's from Uganda. And he became a Christian when two men knocked on the door of his home in his village in Uganda. And they said, we're here to talk to people about Jesus. And they told him who Jesus is. And they told him that he needs to be forgiven and that only Jesus could save and change him. So they asked him, do you want to trust Jesus as your savior? And you want to follow Jesus as your Lord? And he said, yes, I do want to do that. So they prayed with him and he became a Christian, which is awesome. And then they said to him, we're going next door to tell them too. come with us. So he did. He's like, okay, that must be what you do as a Christian. So he came next door. And then the three of them knocked on a door and, and met another man. And they said, we're telling people about Jesus so that they can become Christians. And then he pointed at Alfred and he said, he just became a Christian. Tell them about it. So Alfred's like, okay. So uh, I was over there 20 minutes ago. And then these two guys knocked on my door and they said, I need to be forgiven and I need to trust in Jesus. And do I want Jesus to be my savior and my king? And I said, yes. And I prayed. And that was 20 minutes ago, and now I'm here, and you should become a Christian too. Now, is that what you would have done? This is, I love this story. Is that what you would have done? I don't think that's what I would have done. Because I would have said to Alfred, it's fantastic that you've become a Christian. You're not really ready yet to tell other people about that, though. You need a year of training. There's two must-read books. You have to listen to this podcast series. There's a few exams to sit, and then... You'll be ready to tell people. 
But that's not how God works. Hardly qualified Christians can't stop God's work. Of course, there's a place for qualification and for learning. We want to share the true gospel with people so they trust the real Jesus. I met Alfred at Bible college. He was doing a PhD so that he could better serve the church in Africa. He's now a bishop in Uganda, one of three bishops in Uganda. Of course, there is a place for learning. But hardly qualified Christians can't stop God's work. Jesus is far better than our world knows. And we need to tell people about that. We get to tell people about that. And you don't need a qualification. You don't need permission. You don't need an invitation to tell people about Jesus. But you do need courage. Because it's scary to be an Ananias. You actually see that in his first response when Jesus speaks to him. Have a look back in verse 13. Verse 13. Jesus appears to Ananias in a vision. And he says this, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I feel like reading between the lines, Ananias is kind of saying, I know you know everything, Jesus, but just in case you forgot, Saul's the guy hunting down Christians and I'm meant to go and meet him. This kind of sounds like a stitch-up, and I'm about to go to prison, just so you know. But he trusts Jesus. He has the courage to trust Jesus. And so he goes, and he loves Saul, and he teaches Saul. And Paul, the greatest evangelist the world has ever known, is born. I, I kind of imagine Ananias 50 years after this moment, just hearing story after story after story of what God has done through Saul and knowing that he was part of it. I imagine Ananias 50 years after this moment reading the Bible written by Saul. Hardly qualified Christians, as if we could stop God's work. Scared, flawed, sin-filled Christians can't stop God's work because it's God's work. God's standard method is to use Christians to introduce people to Christ. The church and Christians and God's work in the world, on the surface, it seems very stoppable, doesn't it? It faces so many obstacles from outside and from within. It looks so brittle and fragile and flimsy, but it's not. It's unstoppable because it's God's work and no one can stop God. Let me read you one last verse from Acts 5. Acts 5, the, when they've sent the apostles out just before they flogged them, they ha- the Sanhedrin are debating and they say this, verse 38, Acts 5 verse 38, In the present case I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. This is unstoppable because it's God's work and no one can stop God. Hard hearts can't stop God. Hardly qualified Christians can't stop God's word. So let me give you just three, let me give you three things that I think we can do in response to these truths. Three things that we could do with these truths. The first one is to pray. Our part is to introduce people to Jesus. God's part is to cause them to trust and follow Jesus. 
we share the message and live a life that backs up that message, God is the one who saves, and God is the only one who could save. So pray to our God. Pray for everyone and anyone. Never, ever, ever give up on anyone. Who do you need to pray for today? Who do you need to start praying for again today? The second thing we can do is to share. Jesus doesn't usually send blinding lights to stop people in their tracks. Even for Saul, he sent Ananias. And Jesus sends you and he sends me to be like Ananias. And we are more than competent because God is more than capable of using us. We are more than competent for this task because God is more than capable of using us. The sad truth that I keep realizing is that God is more willing to save people than I am willing to share it with people. But if people never hear about Jesus, how could they ever trust in Jesus? The third thing we can do is to learn more about Jesus to discover the same kind of thing that Saul did, to let our the way we view the world be unraveled and put Jesus at the center. Especially I want to encourage this, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're here checking out, exploring who Jesus is and what the Bible claims, let me encourage you to come back to Soul Church and discover more about Jesus as we work our way through the book of Acts. And ask the Christians that you know to tell you what's Jesus done in their life. So that you can see this is not just a nice idea. This is real. People really are changed when they meet Jesus. And so that you can see this is not an interesting history lesson of something that happened to Saul. This is happening right now in this room, in this church, all over Wollongong, all over the world. This is what happens whenever anyone meets Jesus and trusts him as their savior and follows him as their Lord. So learn and explore and be curious about all this and read the Bible for yourself as an adult and see if, like Saul, you discover that Jesus is not who you think he is. He's so much more. How about I pray? Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your deep, deep love for us that is completely undeserved. We may not have been as bad as Saul, But we know we are guilty of the same things, guilty of not treating you the way you should be treated and all the sins that flow from that. We praise you so much for your incredible forgiveness and love for us. Thank you for the salvation that many of us in this room have in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we'd be bold to go and tell others about this, knowing that you long to see people saved and belonging to you. And I pray for those of us here and those of us in our city, those of us we know, who don't trust in Jesus, even those people we know who just seem so incredibly far from you. We pray, Lord, that you would show so much mercy. Please work through our witness, work through our words to draw them closer to you, to give them salvation in Jesus. Amen.